0: Good morning, everybody, and on this bone-chilling morning, I begin with the proclamation of a soul-inflaming good news. If we believe in our hearts and confess with our mouths that Jesus Christ is Lord, we are forgiven. By grace through faith in Jesus Christ, we are redeemed. We are reconciled, we are reborn, and we are revealed as sons and daughters of God, the very children of God. This, Jesus has accomplished through His incarnation, that marvelous, miraculous, wondrous, and mysterious incarnation where the second person of the Trinity, literally in the Gospel of John, pitched a tent of flesh and lived among us. And in His living among us as one of us, He put together in perfect union the relationship between God and those who bear His image. He put together the perfect relationship. He showed us what that relationship looked like, what that relationship looks like. He gave us the true understanding of God, the true knowledge of who this God is. He gave us a true understanding of what our obedience means and what that looks like. And He gave us the true understanding of love. God is love. And what that love looks like, not only in our relationship to God, but in relationship to each other. This is the good news. We have been rescued. We are children. This is who we are and whose we are by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. That is soul-inflaming on a bone-chilling day. Uh, But as you probably know, there's also some bad news that goes with that. So, here's the bad news. We're still human. Yeah. Children of God? Yes. Co-heirs with Christ? Yes. The temple of the Holy Spirit? Yes. Partakers of the divine nature? Yes. But… God? No. No. Divine? No. Equal with God? Oh, no. And perfect? Heck, no. Even though, even though we are forgiven, even though we are free from the compulsion and consequences of sin, even though we are adopted into the family of God, we remain no less fallen, fallible, and, brace yourself, failures. Now, of course, our egos are immediately going to go and say, I'm not a failure. I'm, I'm darn good. I'm at church at 13 below zero. That ought to get me somewhere close to the front row. Although, interestingly, none of you are sitting in the front row. I find it interesting. But here's what's interesting, perhaps more interesting than the fact that no one's sitting in the front row, is that our refusal to acknowledge our failure, ironically, ironically, is one of our failures. Now, if it's too cold or too early in the morning to wrap your head around that, just give it a moment, let it sink in. None of us are perfect. And in fact, what we do is we have a tendency to try to justify all of that and say, well, I'm not as bad as, or I don't do that, and while I will grant you that, that's not the standard. Jesus set the standard in His incarnation, in His life, remember, He showed us what a true saving knowledge of God is, what we are to believe about God, how we are to behave in response to God, and how we are beloved, and how we are to beloved others. If we fall short on either one of those three, yeah… That's where the lack of perfection comes in. That's where the failure comes in. And you know, something else is that we have a tendency to forget that we're failures. We forget that we're in desperate need. We forget that things are, how shall we say, we've missed the mark. And so when you put all of this together, it seems that we're in always this condition of needing to be rescued, needing to be redeemed, needing to be something else. But we forget, because sometimes it's just easier to forget. It's not as painful. It's not as irritating or agitating. But In all of that, what we have is this constant reminder, and that constant reminder is that those of us who have placed our faith, those of us who have trusted in Jesus Christ, there is this ongoing call, this ongoing assurance. But what is that ongoing assurance? It seems to me that if we had that ongoing assurance, this would not be an issue. Where is our hope? Where is our confidence? If we're always going to be failing, if we're always going to be falling short, if we're always going to be in this fallen condition, what hope do we have that anything is sure? How do we know that in our inability to stay true to God, how do we know that in our inability to stay faithful, God's not going to just eventually shrug shoulders and say, forget that. I'll give you your 50, 60, 75, 85, 95, years here on earth, but buddy, when that end day comes, you're going to get yours. Where's the confidence? Where's the hope? And my friends, that brings us back to the good news, because the good news is this. We have an intercessor we have someone who is always speaking on our behalf. Regardless of our fallenness, regardless of our forgetfulness, regardless of fill-in-the-blank, we have an intercessor, someone who is speaking on our behalf all the time to God the Father. And that is the point, that is the focus of our good news for this morning. So, I invite you, if you have your Bibles open them up to the letter, the first letter of John, Bibles, phones, devices. Again, I always admire those of you who have it memorized. And again, in case you're not really familiar with where that's located, uh, start the back of your Bible. We'll skip over the concordance in the dictionary. But then Revelation, Jude, 3 John, 2 John, 1 John. And I will go ahead and inform you that even though that's going to be our focus text today, we're going to, be ha- we're going to have to go to the book of Hebrews. So, consider that, and I will bring that to our attention uh, down the road, but just to let you know. But our focus text today is from the first letter of John, and we will read the first chapter, so that's ten verses, and then we will read the first two verses of chapter 2. Before we read, would you please join me in prayer? And now, Almighty God, Creator, Sustainer, Redeemer of all of creation, the lover of our souls, the one who has ensured that we may never need to fear or to doubt. The one who has provided all that we need to be in a relationship with you forever by grace through faith in Jesus. To you, O God, we dedicate this time of worship and of proclaiming your word We ask now that the same Spirit who inspired this word will be the same Spirit that will open our hearts, our ears, and our minds to the truth that will set us free to be your hands, to be your feet, to be your heart in this world. May the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, for you are indeed our rock and our salvation. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. My friends, I invite you now to read along or listen to the Word of God as it comes to us from the hand of the Apostle John in what we call his first letter. Listen now to the Word of God. What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we beheld, and our hands handled concerning the Word of life. And the life was manifested... And we have seen and bear witness and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested to us. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also, that you also may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And these things we write so that our joy may be complete. And this is the message we have heard from him and announced to you, that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make God out to be a liar, and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you that you may not sin, and if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. So, the good news is that we have hope. Despite our fallenness, despite our frailties, despite our fallibility, by the way, fallibility, just a big, fancy, multisyllabic word for you're going to make mistakes. Despite all of that, we have hope. We have hope because we know who God is, we know what God desires for us. Jesus has brought that to us, but it doesn't stop there. It doesn't stop with the incarnation. Jesus continues his work through his intercession. And so we're going to take a look at three questions with regards to Jesus' intercession. The first one is, why do we need an intercessor? Really? Second is, how is it that Jesus is our intercessor? And the third one is, So what? What do we do with that? What do we get out of it? You know, being the non-selfish people that we are, why is this a big deal for me? So, let's begin with the first question. Why do we need an intercessor? Again, really? We haven't caught on to that yet, I understand that we can ask the rhetorical question, how many of us in here have not done anything wrong yet today? My hand will not go up. Some of us, though, we're we're, we're pretty confident. Not yet today anyway. But none of that is, it's not about a particular don't do type of thing. Because what John, to, that to which John is referring in his letter is a state of being, and that state of being is predicated on what Jesus has brought to us in his incarnation. And what Jesus has brought to us in his incarnation is a right understanding of who God is, a right belief, a right behavior, and a right understanding of the nature of love. It, together, corporately, that is a saving knowledge of God. And if that is true, if this is something that the Spirit has given to John, if this is something that John is giving to us, then our errors, our fallibility, and let's just call it for what it is, our sin, and boy, we don't like that word, but our sin is not simply a matter of smacking Nathan in the face. It's not a matter of poking Jim in the eye. It's not a matter of talking about Pam behind her back. What it is, is that it's missing the mark on any one of those three axes. It means misdirected belief, not believing the truth of God. That puts us over here into this state of sin. Maybe you have right orthodoxy, another big fancy word, right glory to God. We give right glory to God by believing the right things about God. Maybe we do, maybe our orthodoxy is impeccable, but boy, you wouldn't know it in our behavior. Yikes! So, we may know all the right things, but our behavior, eh, we may miss the mark. Or, it's altogether possible that our orthodoxy is pristine, our behavior impeccable. But what's our motivation? Do we do it because we really love the one who first loved us? Or do we do it because it gets people to like us? Do we do it because we genuinely love one another as God first loved us? Or do we do it because we're hoping to curry favor? Like me. Vote for me. Make me your pastor. Make me your friend. And so we fall short. We miss the mark on love. And so, why do we need an intercessor? Why do we need someone to speak on our behalf? Why do we need an advocate? Because my friends, and actually, I get to call you brothers and sisters. Do you know that? I do. Now, we in a more conservative and I don't mean conservative necessarily theologically, but socially, it, it, we don't like to call each other brothers and sisters. That's that's more for charismatics, that's more for Pentecostals, that's more for people who get really excited about Jesus, and we're just here to be for Jesus, not really get excited about Jesus. <laughs> I'm just saying. But you know what? I have the privilege of calling you brothers and sisters. And you know what? You have the privilege of calling me anything you want. As long as you throw brother in there, we're okay. But we're, we're, we're going to fail, folks. Let's just suck it up, take courage in both hands. As Martin Luther would say, let us sin boldly, because the truth of the matter is, is we're just not always going to hit the mark. In fact, that's what the Greek word for sin means, to miss the mark. And if we're going to miss the mark, wouldn't it be great if we had someone on our side, someone in our corner, someone who was saying to the one who has ultimate authority over who we are and whose we are, someone saying to that person all the time, gosh, we love him. Gosh, we love her gosh, I died for her, gosh, son, I'm so glad our plan is working out, let's not lose our grip on this one, shall we? That is why we need an intercessor. So, the second question is, how is it that Jesus, how is it that Jesus is our intercessor? What in the world has He done to put Him in such an esteemed position? Wow, how much time do you have? But let's start with the fundamentals. First and foremost, he's the second person of the Trinity. And I know, I know that one day you would love to have someone stand here, sit here, walk here, and explain to you in the minutest and most definitive detail, what does it mean to talk about the Trinity? And I'm going to say to you, as soon as you find that person, fire them. Because that person thinks that he or she knows a heck of a lot more than any human can fully comprehend. It's a mystery. And that is okay. It is. Because even the disciples, even Philip, Read it. Open up your Bibles. Read the Gospels. John, Gospel of John. Even Philip said, I'm not too sure about that part's in the margin. I'm not too sure about this. And so he goes to Jesus and he says, Show us the Father. We're we're not getting this. Just make it plain. And Jesus, and I'm pretty sure this is Aramaic, Jesus stepped back and went, Ta da! Now, that didn't make it into our English Bibles because a lot of editorial boards didn't know what to do with ta da. But anyway, that's essentially what Jesus said. If you want to know who the Father is, listen to me, look at me. But more than that, trust me in his incarnation, in his coming, the second person of the Trinity, God himself becomes flesh. And in becoming flesh, He establishes a covenant that can never be broken. Why? Because God is the one who established His own covenant, and He's not going to let that break. And Jesus, as fully human, says this is exactly what it looks like for humans to fully fulfill their part of the covenant. In other words, it can't go wrong. It can't but that's only part of it, showing us, bringing us a a saving knowledge of God. Right belief, right behavior, right love, that's only part of it, because the other part of it is that in His incarnation, He became the propitiation. We just read that in chapter 2. Big fancy word. We spoke about it last week. Propitiation means to take away the penalty of our whatever you want to call it. If you're getting used to sin, that's good, because it's easy to say. But unfaithfulness fallibility, but His propitiation, His willing self-sacrifice, ensured that He took away the consequence that rightly belongs to us because we continue to be fallible. But it's no longer, it's no longer on us. That has been taken away. That has been satisfied. So, remember earlier I said That we don't need to worry about getting through our 50, 60, 70, 80, maybe 100 years thinking, holy smokes, what's that last day going to look like? We don't have to worry about the last day because we are already secure because of what He has done. And not only has He satisfied the anger of God, the wrath of God, the coming judgment of God, He's taken away everything that can get in the way. He has taken away that sin that separates us, and God says, you are mine. You're my sons and daughters. Are you perfect? No! No. But that's not the standard, folks. It's not the standard. It's trust. It's trusting that Jesus has done this for us. But it doesn't stop there, because not only has Jesus taken away the wrath of God, not only has Jesus taken away the guilt of sin, not only has Jesus revealed to us that saving knowledge of God, now He's doing more. Have you ever wondered, hmm, now that Jesus is in heaven, I wonder what He's doing? Seriously is the question ever crossed your mind what do you do forever i don't know i'm looking forward to it but right at this moment i can't answer that question but you know what we have an answer and this is where we're going to talk this is where we're going to turn to hebrews so if you want to keep your finger or a piece of paper or whatever in 1st john i invite you to turn with me to the book of hebrews why are we turning to the book of hebrews here's why because in that passage of 1st john 1 John, in that first letter of John, John says that he is our righteous advocate. Some of our Bibles will say righteous comforter, or some of maybe even righteous intercessor. But the Greek word there literally means advocate, one who is on our side, one who speaks on our behalf. But it doesn't really tell us much about Jesus getting to that point, what that actually looks like. And so to have a little more detail about what that actually looks like, we have to turn to the book of Hebrews. And so that's why we're going to Hebrews chapter 7. And Greg is a big, for those of you who have heard me preach and teach before, Greg is a big fan of context. Because if you take a text out of context, it's a pretext for a proof text. In other words, you can make the Bible say anything you want if you're careless. I'm not careless. I may bore you to death, but I'm not careless. And so the context here, up to chapter 7, is that the writer of Hebrews has been arguing that Jesus is the supreme priest. Jesus is the ultimate intercessor. Jesus is the ultimate mediator. He is the ultimate advocate. He is king. He is priest. He is prophet. He is the perfect person to serve both God and humanity, and to establish and maintain that relationship between the two. It can't be broken. It's never-ending. And how can that be? Because we have, to go through, we have to go through some basics of theology, real quick. And here they are. In His incarnation, in His death, He provides propitiation and expiation. We've already talked about that. And that occurred in His crucifixion his death. In his ascension, he demonstrates that in fact God has power not over life but over death. And in his ascension, in his ascension, he rises to be with the Father. He came from the Father as the second person. He returns to the Father as the crucified Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And in the very presence of his Father, he then is exalted, it's exaltation, that He is glorified, He is lifted up because of His obedience. Paul, in his letter to the church in Philippi, writes something like this. This is a paraphrase. Chapter, uh, I believe it's chapter 2, verses two through uh, 5 through 11, something along those lines. Someone fact-checked me. But he re- it reads something like this, have this same mindset in you that Jesus had in himself that even though He was God, He didn't consider being God something to cling to and not give to other people. But He literally emptied Himself. He gave everything of Himself and took on the form of a human being, Then, as a human being, He was obedient. He was a servant, and He was obedient even unto death. And Paul emphasizes death on a cross. And this is where the exaltation comes in, because then Paul writes, so that, at the name of Jesus, and folks, don't get, please, don't get hung up on the name thing. In the name of, whenever you see it in Scripture, whenever you see it in the Old Testament, whenever you see it in the New Testament, more often than not, it means in the authority, in the power, not in the name itself. There were a lot of people named Jesus, Jesus in that day. It's not Jesus. It's who He is. And so Paul writes, because of His obedience, because He gave of Himself, because He was pleasing to the Father, because He propitiated and expiated sin, because of that, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and underneath the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is what? Lord. Not friend, not lover, Lord. To what end? To the glory of God the Father. His exaltation puts him at the right hand. Right hand is symbolic of power, of authority. And so he sits at the right hand of the Father. Now, ready for this? If he was dead, and he resurrected from the dead, what are the odds are of him dying again? Just guess. I, I'm going to go with zero, just because probabilistically that's what makes most sense. In other words, folks, he's not going to die. It's over. It's done. Everything that needed to be accomplished has been accomplished. In fact... We're told that one of his last word from the cross, his last word from this thing that he was staked to. And please don't get romantic about this thing. Don't. It may not have even looked like this. And I guarantee it was a lot dirtier than this. And I guarantee you that he was ugly. And he was staked to it, not through his hands, through his wrists. Because if he was staked through his hands, he would have slipped right off, would have torn right off. He was beaten into hamburger. And if you're thinking, well, that's gross. Yeah, but we like to clean it up because we don't want to think of our Jesus bleeding and that. Well, he was. For us. And because of that, he did everything, everything that the Father desired For us. And He's exalted, King of kings, Lord of lords. He's eternal. And according to the author of Hebrews later on in chapter 10, after His exaltation, there is His session. Session literally means to be seated. And Hebrews 10 tells us that He is seated at the right hand of God the Father. Paul tells us, in the book of Romans, that He is at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us, talking on our behalf. He is in eternal communication with the Father. How is it that Jesus is our intercession? Is because His sacrifice, His self-sacrifice is utterly acceptable and efficacious. There needs to be no other sacrifice. His relationship with the Father is immediate and unbroken. He's right there. There is no intermediary. There doesn't need to be a talk through. He and the Father are right there with each other. It's immediate and unbroken. The third one? Let's go back to Hebrews, because in Hebrews 7, verse 25, it reads this way. Therefore, Jesus is able to save forever those who draw near to God through Him, since He always lives to make intercession for them. In other words… Jesus is alive and well forever. And because of that, He will always be in communication with the Father on our behalf. And because of that, therefore, we can come to a very stark and very encouraging conclusion, which is this. That advocate will always be for us. That intercessor will always be for us. And because of that, we will always have access to God. It's bilateral. Jesus has established that relationship. And right there, the writer of Hebrews says, He lives always to intercede for us. He's always available 24 7, 365, to use the jargon. Are you feeling like nobody cares about you? Are you feeling like you'd rather just put your, an end to your life? Are you willing to say that there's nothing more? Are you willing to say there is no hope? Are you willing to despair? Pick up the phone. You have 24-7 access. Your intercessor, your advocate is ready to hear from you. And then you can know the soul-inflaming good news that you too are a child of God. Which brings us to the third question. So what? I mean, we can be startled by, he what? God became flesh? Ah." We've talked about that. But so what? So what from two perspectives. One, so what? Who cares? And you want me to be honest with you? I will be. I don't care if you care or not. I don't. Because that's on you. I have been given the privilege by session, and I have been given the responsibility by my God to proclaim the good news. I've shared that with you today. What you do with it, that's on you. I get no tally marks. I get no kickback. I receive no bonus if you decide, oh, Jesus is my Lord. I mean, great. But that's for you. So the answer to so what is it's all for you. What will you do with it? The second part of so what is that it reminds us that we do have an advocate. It reminds us that we are going to fall short as hard as we try, as hard as we don't want to. We're going to, And that doesn't give us carte blanche, that doesn't give us, you know, white tablet permission just to go out and say, well, I'm going to do whatever I darn well please, and I'm going to go back to God and ask for permission to be forgiven, and then all will be well and good. It doesn't work that way. God has said, I have come to you in the flesh that you might know me and love me and love others because of me. That's the so what. The last thing that I share with you is that it gives us hope. It gives us confidence. It gives us security. We live in a time when people would rather blaspheme and throw away the name of Jesus than embrace Him as Lord and Savior. We live in a time when people would rather cling to traditionalism than cling to tradition as a way to continue our connection with God. We live in a time when people think that I don't need God, Jesus. In fact, I don't need a divinity at all. I know what to do. I'll take care of it, and off we go but perhaps even more diabolical. And I use that word intentionally because the word diabolical comes from the Greek word which means devil. Perhaps more diabolical is the thinking that we are self-sufficient, we are self-forgiving, we are self-sacrificing, and we can take care of it all. And my friends, It takes but a moment or two for us to then slip into a state of, how do I put it, despair, hopelessness, because we soon become fully aware that we're just not going to be able to do it ourselves. We just can't. And so, what do we do? I close by reminding us that because Jesus is eternal, because His love for us is so great that He gave up His place as the second person of the Trinity to become flesh for us. I remind you that because of what God has accomplished in Jesus through the incarnation, through His propitiation, His expiation, through His crucifixion, His ascension, His exaltation, and now His intercession, I remind you of this confidence. I remind you of this hope which comes to us from Paul when he writes his letter to the church in Rome. And my friends, I invite you to stand, please, with me, and listen to this word of hope that comes to us. Romans chapter 8, beginning with verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is the one who can condemn? Jesus is he who died, yes, rather who was raised and who is at the right hand of God and who always intercedes and advocates on our behalf. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword, or frigid cold? Just as it is written, for thy sake we are being put to death all day long, we were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all things... We are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am convinced, for I am convinced that neither life nor death nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, or any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Jesus Christ the Lord. Believe in Him. Trust in Him. Receive Him. Stake your very existence on Him because He stands at the right hand of our Father and says, don't Let this one get away." Will you join me in prayer? We thank you, O God, and I think that's enough. We thank you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.